0: A warning, this podcast contains discussion and descriptions of physical, sexual and psychological violence and may not be suitable for listeners under 15 years.
1: A listener production.
0: Welcome back to State Crime Command. This is episode three of Control, brought to you by the New South Wales Police Force Domestic and Family Violence Team. I'm your host, Adam Shand. The New South Wales Police Force has made this podcast to encourage victims to engage with police and domestic violence support services, or simply to tell family and friends in order to break the control that abusive partners try to exert over them. As a society, we need to support women that are experiencing domestic and family violence, and to work together to break down the barriers to reporting. We don't want violent offenders to continue to walk the streets and be able to terrorise their partners with impunity. In our story, Cassie and Kylie were initially reluctant to share information with police because they feared retribution, but also because they felt guilt and shame. It was only when they reported Connor's violence that together they were able to stop it.
2: Cassie.
3: I was too proud and too ashamed that I was allowing someone... And it's not that I allowed the treatment, but not leaving and not reporting him is essentially allowing them to continue that behaviour. And that's not OK. You've got to put yourself first. At that time that I left, I was like, I cannot, I absolutely refuse to let my son grow up believing this is normal. There's no
0: way. Kylie.
4: Yeah, I think until you made that decision to call the police, you're never going to get out of it because until the police are involved, you're... You're just going to keep going back and they're going to not stay away. If you don't call the police, you're never going to get out of it.
5: I'm Assistant Commissioner Leanne McCusker, the Region Commander for Northwest Metropolitan Region. And more recently, I have taken over the role as the corporate sponsor for domestic and family violence. So I've been in the New South Wales Police Force now for over 33 years. My experience with domestic violence over these 33 years is probably what I'd call quite broad, covering all facets of domestic violence. So naturally, as a young police officer, being one of the the first responding police to various and and many domestic violence incidents over the years and sadly many times for those types of matters of domestic violence, I certainly saw a strong correlation between domestic violence and sexual violence as well.
0: Both of Connor's victims suffered sexual abuse that was never reported. Before police got involved, Kylie reasoned it was safer to go along with his sexual coercion than to invite his wrath.
4: Yeah, it's scary because it's like do you work with them or, you know, like people get angry and people can fight and yell but there's no cut-off point for him and so he could kill you and that's the difference. So sometimes it's easier to work with him and try to protect yourself than rely on anyone else to do it or stop anyone else getting hurt because he'd always, you know, threaten your family and things
0: like that. This tendency to minimise the offending by victims is part of a greater challenge of underreporting. reporting
5: As an organisation and probably more so as a community, we certainly know that domestic and family violence has been under-reported over the years. So New South Wales Police Force do respond to a significant number of domestic violence incidents and it is over 130,000 each year, can um, range from... A family argument, right through to unfortunately a domestic violence homicide. It is quite clearly one of the most significant crime types that we do respond to.
0: Contrary to popular opinion, Australia is not suffering a new epidemic of domestic violence. The problem has always been here. It's just a massively underreported crime. Reporting has increased in recent years, partly due to the fact that victims have more confidence in police when they make reports.
5: As we start to see that increase in reports of domestic and family violence, as much as we certainly would like to see a reduction, I think there has to be a period of time where the increase is seen as a positive. And what I mean by that is that the community has a greater trust in the New South Wales police force, in our police officers that are responding, as a community that the behaviour that was possibly seen as behind closed doors is now not tolerated and is certainly seen as the crime that it is, as opposed to probably historically what was seen as family business and other people were not to get involved in. So that's certainly a positive over the years, not only from New South Wales Police, but also from the community as a whole.
0: The New South Wales Police Force has worked tirelessly to encourage people, especially women, to engage with police. This reflects changing social attitudes to domestic and family violence.
5: From a community, from a social perspective, violence towards women is most definitely front and centre. And with that, we continue to look at the strategies as an organisation, as the police force, that we continue to support victims of domestic and family violence. And we do so working closely with the various support agencies as well.
0: The sea change in responding to domestic violence came with a determination by the criminal justice system to treat these offences like any other crime. Chief Inspector Sean McDermott is the manager of the New South Wales Police Force's
2: Domestic and Family Violence Team. Our approach is to investigate it actually as a crime, as you would a breaking into, as you would a robbery, as you would other types of violence. So to actually have a, a holistic and thorough approach to investigating domestic violence, that's the difference, the fundamental difference.
0: Sean McDermott says these are crimes of control characterized by patterns of dominance that include sexually controlling behaviors
2: and sexual assault. One of the things that actually surprised me when I I came to the domestic and family violence team was the, I suppose, the frequency of sexual assault and sexually motivated behaviors in relationships that are occurring in the context of domestic violence because the the sexual act itself is a manifestation of control. It's a manifestation of the dynamic sometimes within that relationship and it's about a message being passed from one partner to another in some ways.
0: When a person makes the decision to tell their story to police, a legal process begins. This can be arduous on the victim and their families. The victim
2: must have a clear understanding of what is to follow. I think in terms of our approach to domestic violence as a police force, we've come almost light years along from the, the 90s to where we are now. We've seen amazing developments in terms of evidence capture, victim support, how we target reoffenders, and how we're trying to communicate with the public effectively. We've gone from being an organisation that reflected community attitudes which were not conducive to the solving of domestic violence as an issue to becoming a leader. The fundamental challenge for police is... To understand that what victims want is not necessarily what we want. And secondly, to understand that there are limitations to the criminal justice process. uh, And yeah, we shouldn't think of wins or victories as criminal justice outcomes. What a victim wants generally is for violence to stop and for them to be safe and for their own children to be safe. Victims generally don't think as an outcome, as a win, if you like, as going to court and giving evidence in an open court, for example, and getting a conviction. That's largely irrelevant to them. What they're after is for violence to stop. And from my perspective, that really emphasises the importance of actually contacting police and getting a protection order. I think it's about educating victims of what they should expect from the process. It is a process and once a victim engages with police, unfortunately in some ways there's no turning back to some of the processes that we actually start and we do that deliberately when we arrest and charge people, we take an ADVO out. The actual choices to do that, lays with the police and we deliberately go with that model because we want to take the pressure off victims to having to make that choice and therefore to reduce the level of intimidation or ongoing harassment they could be subject to. The basic process will involve an arrest and charge, put the matter before a court, uh, concurrently with her seeking a protection or an ADVO and referral to other services. So it's important that, obviously, victims understand that, that once the process does start, that the police will generally not desist from the process, that we believe it's in the public interest for these matters to be, you know, ventilated in an open court and for the perpetrators to be held to account as much as we can make them to be held to account.
0: An important aspect of taking a violent partner to court is the immediate shift of power to the victim. Sean McDermott sees the goal of the entire process, from arrest to sentencing, is about breaking the long-term control of the perpetrator.
2: A common trait throughout most of our homicides that we've seen in, in terms of precursors is control, controlling behaviours. That seems to be the most common commonality. There are other issues that stand out in terms of, you know, red flags would be sexual assault, strangulation, separation, suicidal ideation, as in the offender threatening to harm themselves, that's a really big red flag. These are things that we see stand out again and again. The challenge on this
0: journey is to build trust between victims and police. In our story, Connor was able to receive bail while awaiting trial for violence against Kylie. This was a significant hurdle for Kylie in continuing to engage with police.
4: I just think these guys really need to be locked up until the actual court date and not be let out on an AVO, yeah. Mm. I guess it's hard because maybe some people are innocent in this, but I guess, especially when you have a child, the fear. I think if I knew he was locked up and wasn't out, I would have probably given the police way more, triple, double, quadruple, the information I did give Mm. because I wouldn't have been in as much fear as I was.
2: The harsh fact of it is this. We talked about domestic violence being a crime and an offence and recognised as such, but it is a crime amongst many criminal offences in our statute books here in New South Wales, and as such, it's dealt with like every other crime. There's the same standard of proof, the same applicability generally of the Bail Act to whether people get out on bail, and it depends on their criminal history and the like. Police do play a valuable role in actually determining bail initially, and if we do bail refuse somebody... And we frequently, and I'd say almost always, with a breach of an ADVA, we do bail refuse people. Ultimately, the decision that's made, determination on bail, is made by a court.
0: The domestic violence officer plays a key role in securing justice for the victims helping to reconcile the victim's need for safety and the public interest in prosecuting domestic and family violence offenders.
1: The police are there to take legal action where evidence exists. So, my name is Senior Constable Leslie King. I've been in the police force since 2006, so 14 years now. I'm currently a police prosecutor and prior to that um, I was a domestic violence liaison officer for about nine years and prior to that I did general duties at Marylands. Quite often when someone rings triple O, they're ringing triple O because they're in a moment of crisis, something is happening to them, something terrible might be happening to them or their children, they need help. They ring Chippewa to get help in the moment. The police turn up, and the police not only give them that assistance by, for example, arresting the offender at the scene or removing the offender and removing the cause of the problem, but then this legal action starts. And quite often the person who rang Triple O never expected that to happen and never wanted that to happen. They just wanted some help in the moment. They wanted the violence to stop, and that's what the police do. We do come out and stop it, but at the same time, the police are interested in stopping the violence long-term. So not just now in the moment, but we're interested now in making sure this doesn't happen again tomorrow or next year. That's why we're going to apply for an AVO. We are interested in if this person has broken the law, they've committed an offence, they need to be arrested, they need to be put before a court, there needs to be consequences, they need to take responsibility in the hopes that they're not going to do this again. Because statistically speaking, if someone is arrested and charged on their first offence, they're much less likely to continue re-offending. But, of course, the victim in the moment isn't interested in that. And once the police take out an AVO, let's say that the the AVO excludes the offender from the home, and that can be shocking for a victim who... Relies on that person for financial support. That person might have been so controlling um, that the victim has never been allowed to have a job. They've always been told they need to stay at home and look after the children. They don't have any money of their own. They've never paid the mortgage. And suddenly, their partner, who's been the breadwinner, has now been excluded from the home. And now they're worried about well, I don't have a job. I don't have any experience. I haven't been in the workplace for over 10 years, for example. How am I going to pay this mortgage? How am I going to feed the kids? Or people that have lots of children, five or six kids, and their partner is now excluded from the home. And they're overwhelmed with trying to look after so many children because I think what we need to not forget is that people that are in these abusive relationships, their abuser isn't abusive all the time. There are periods where there is love and they have fun and they like to um, remind themselves of those times when they considering whether they leave or whether they stay. So when the police come and exclude someone from the house and say there can be no contact, that can be very confronting for a victim who was never expecting that.
0: This complex and highly nuanced form of policing is challenging work. And so the New South Wales Police Force has carefully selected officers with the right skills to be domestic violence officers.
6: My name is Senior Constable Janelle Warne. I'm based at the Domestic and Family Violence Team at Parramatta, which is under the Crime Prevention Unit for all of New South Wales. And I have been in the police force now for over 10 years.
0: Janelle Warne joined the force at age 47 after another career. She found she had an aptitude for domestic violence policing.
6: I got sent to Blacktown and it had a lot of domestic violence, as a lot of stations do. And I just think I fell into that position as domestic violence officer. And yeah, I certainly took it on with some passion. I had a certain victim come in who had a horrific story. I rang her and said to her that what I'd read, um, I felt like she was going to definitely die. And I said she could come in, you know, scared and I'd help her as much as I could and with what information there was on the system where she had not ever given his name and what was happening. Her story was horrific. It went worldwide at the time. He'd done terrible things. He'd burned her skin. he would I'd never heard anything like it in my life, to be honest. For this young girl to come in and tell her horrific story, it took me an hour and a half to get her to walk in off the street it took me another hour to get her confident enough and then I got a young detective who was amazing and did a fantastic job with her case and he ended up getting 18 years. She had said to me, that victim on that night, that she knew he was evil and she knew he'd done the wrong things but she felt bad that he was going to end up in jail because of her. So it's it's sort of something that's always resonated with me and to hear Cassie Um, Say that again and minimalise that behaviour that's so unacceptable, That's frightening behaviour, is something that I think we can't make as a norm. It's not normal.
0: Cassie says Connor's violence became normalised in their relationship, even during pregnancy.
3: I mean, if you really care about your child, would you really beat the mother who's carrying it? Top to toe, he would hit me and tell me if anything happened to the baby,
0: it would be my fault. Janelle Warren says her job is far more than simply locking up offenders.
6: We look at how we can help someone get through the court system. Is there an offence? If there's not an offence, what can we do to put this person onto a service that can help them through? Because, you know, sometimes there isn't enough for police to take out any legal action. However, we need to be able to put that person into a support service
0: if victims ultimately don't
2: want to engage with police, there are other ways to feel safe again. Sean McDermott. The main thing I'd say to victims if they're not going to approach to police or they want to think about approaching to police, I'd say this. There are many support services out there you can approach them first. They can give you advice in terms of safety planning to leave the relationship, other issues and financial help or other referrals for other agencies. So since 2015 here in New South Wales, every time we go to a domestic violence incident, we automatically refer the victim to a support service.
0: Leslie King says there are many reasons why victims are unable or afraid to engage with police over violence in the home.
1: So for a police officer who knows nothing about someone and their relationship to come in and dictate to them how they should be living, that there's an AVO now that says you can't have contact, that can be quite confronting and it can sometimes turn victims against the police. But I would rather have them turn against me, but I know I've done everything I can to keep them safe... I think, for me, that's how I was able to cope when someone that I'd been trying to help seemed to turn against me in the process. I'm a prosecutor now, so now I'm running these cases in court. So I think I have some insight into not just from the domestic violence officer side of things but the prosecutions at court because, of course, before I run a domestic violence case now... I do what's called conferencing, where we conference the victim to tell them about how the court process works and what they can expect when they're giving evidence. And one of the things that I say to people is, look, the court process today, it's a process which the prosecution, the police, have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt what happened to you. It's a very high bar and it's a high bar for a reason, because in our society, we don't want to see any innocent people wrongly convicted. And if a court does find this person not guilty, that doesn't mean that what you say happened to you didn't happen to you. That just means that we weren't able to prove it today. That shouldn't mean that when something else happens tomorrow you shouldn't report it because tomorrow a new investigation commences. There may be different evidence tomorrow. You might feel disappointed today but it doesn't mean that you weren't believed. It means the prosecution simply weren't able to prove it to that very high standard which we are required to prove criminal offences.
0: Cassie and Kylie's story had a happy ending for them despite their prolonged terror and suffering. Connor was arrested jailed and then deported. He cannot return to Australia nor even see his children again without their mother's permission. The control that Connor had over Cassie and Kylie while the abuse stayed in private is now broken. It was not a straightforward process nor an easy one but the system worked in the end.
4: I think the minute you do start talking about it that's when you start to get the strength to actually stay away because people do know And you're not hiding it anymore. So I think the more you talk about it, the more chance you have of actually recovering from it.
3: I actually never have seen myself as a victim. Like, I know that I was by, you know, definitions and everything, but I've never felt like a victim. I'm like, this is just something that I've experienced, something that I've went through. At no point is there ever okay for someone to treat you like that. It's so important that you realise and remember that that's not okay no matter what. You don't deserve that treatment. And, you know, what I have said, that's minimal compared to what I went through and at no point did I ever believe I should have just been nicer to him because, no, he doesn't deserve that.
0: If you need help or know someone that does, call triple O in an emergency. 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 or Men's Line Australia, one 300 78 State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand.
4: Listener.